0: So, I've been looking into Epstein-Barr syndrome recently. Mono? I don't know what the guy from U2 has to do with it, but no. Epstein-Barr, you know, the sinister syndrome that says if you believe in a conspiracy theory that involves former U.S. attorney Bill Barr and noted pedophile philanthropist Jeffrey Epstein, then that causes belief in every other conspiracy theory. I don't think I know about this one. No, no, apparently, belief in the Epstein-Barr conspiracy theory predicts belief in all other conspiracy theories. Once you contract, as the kids say, the Epstein-Barr virus, then you'll end up believing, say, that Diana was killed by MI5, that the moon landings were faked, and that space unicorns cause global heating. Where where exactly are you getting this from? Uh, well, I was doing some background reading for today's Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre uh, and I've been looking at what social psychologists have to say about how conspiracy theories are structured as a belief system and, as you know, they claim it is a mononucleosis belief system.
1: Uh, I think you mean monological belief
0: system. Monological. Not mononucleosis? Monological,
1: yeah. as in the sense that Ted Goetzel talked about, one conspiracy belief begets another.
0: Uh, okay, so what do Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Barr have to do with this? Very little.
1: Bono, on the other hand. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M.
0: Denthoff. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy in Auckland, New Zealand. I am Josh Addison and in Zhuhai, China, we have Associate Professor of Philosophy who sprang fully formed from the head of a, it's like a sort of a turtle thing. I didn't get a good look at it. Anyway, it's Dr. M. R. Extend And I am so gory right now. Gory? Well,
1: when you spring fully formed from a turtle and you don't wash subsequently, you're just covered in viscera covered hmm. in so much viscera. And te- let me tell you, Josh, this viscera is beginning to stink.
0: Hmm. Well, I mean, I didn't say how long ago it was that you sprang fully formed. So, I mean, presumably, it's quite I a while. I spring fully you've been formed every the... day.
1: Every, oh, every I day, I spring forward from the head of a turtle and begin my day, usually with a small espresso.
0: Hmm. Well, that makes sense then. Uh, very good. Now we have... We have some uncharacteristically sad news to start a podcast with this week Yes, so long-time
1: listeners of this podcast will be aware that back in episode 62 Which I think was sometime around the year of our devilish creator 2015 2015 sometime, yeah. yeah We interviewed one Dean Ballinger, who's a media studies scholar down in the Waikato, and we had a great conversation about Alistair Crowley, Alistair Crowley's tour of Aotearoa New Zealand, UFOs and the like. It is, with great sadness, I have to announce that Dean has died. So earlier this month, Dean passed on, as the kids say, and is no longer with us. And it's all rather sad, because Dean and I Mm. were about the same age. We did our PhDs at around about the same time. We both looked into conspiracy theory theory, me from an epistemological stance, him from the field of media studies. And yeah, Dean is no longer with us. He was suffering from an illness last time I saw him in the Waikato, which is about six months before I went to China. And it seems like that illness has taken him. So no more Dean. And it's Mm. all very sad
0: It really is Uh, So we're going to re-release the uh, interview with him episode, are we? We are So I
1: actually spent this morning going through episode 62 Tidying things up Adjusting the levels And also being very much aware that that is the episode Where we talk a lot about groomer and rapist Morgan So I've removed all references to Morgan from that podcast episode
0: Probably for the best. Yeah. Uh, you put a little intro on the front of it or anything, just to. I did, yes, I
1: did. Yes, I, did yeah. I, I do have a little. This is a in memoriam for Dean
0: episode. So. Well, mm. all right then. So yes, yeah, so, so look for that. If it's it's from many years ago now, so uh, an interesting look back um, at the past of the podcast and uh, 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 our little way, I guess, of saying farewell to Dean. You will be missed. Uh, so moving on, moving on with the rest of the episode Maybe it's appropriate that we're doing, we're looking at another philosophical paper this week then If if, if one of your academic colleagues is no longer with us um, We're not looking at anything by Dean though we're, we're returning to the work of one Curtis Hagen Whose name we know how to pronounce properly now
1: We do indeed, even though I do really feel that Curtis should change his last name To fit in with our previous pronunciation
0: Mm, mm. That would be a considerate thing, but never mind he, he, he's, he, he's a, he's a grown-up, he can live his own life We're not your mum, Curtis uh, So do you want to play a chime? And then we'll get on with it
1: I will indeed, I'm going to play this chime right here Welcome to Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece
0: Theatre Yes, so this week we are looking at Conspiracy Theorists and Monological Belief Systems by Curtis Hagen from Argumenta uh, in 2018.
1: Which was a special issue on conspiracy theory theory. So there's a lot of papers in there, which Mm. I
0: believe I am one of them. Mm. Uh, So so this, this is an interesting one. This is... This is kind of Curtis taking on the sociologists a little bit, or the psychologists, the other social scientists. Anyway, it's sort of a yeah. So a, well, a reply. he's specifically
1: taking on social psychologists and also Ted Gertz all at the same time.
0: Mm. So uh, I guess the, the best way to sum it up is just to read the good old fashioned abstract. And I'm going. I don't even care if it's not my turn anymore. I'm going to read this one because it says. Recent scholarship has claimed to show that conspiracy theorists are prone to simultaneously believe mutually contradictory conspiracy theories, as well as believe entirely made-up conspiracy theories. The authors of those studies suggest that this supports the notion that conspiracy theories operate within, quote-unquote, monological belief systems, in which conspiracy theorists find support for conspiratorial beliefs in other conspiratorial beliefs or in related generalizations, rather than in evidence directly relevant to the conspiracy in question. In this article, I argue that all of that is either wrong or at least misleading. The hiccup is not part of the abstract. Fortunately,
1: <clears throat> although I mean, it would be in- would be interesting if it were. What would what, mm. what kind of what kind of grammatical mark would we use for hiccup?
0: I don't know. I haven't. I haven't. I, 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 it's been a long time since I looked through the International Phonetic Alphabet, but I'm sure there must be one. They've got one for all the clicks.
1: Wait, she so. On a related note, so the reading group that I run recently looked at a piece of discourse analysis around when Jerry Brownlee engaged in conspiracy theory dog whistling about the government's COVID-19 response. And it turns out that there's quite the sophisticated set of symbols and terms used by discourse analysis people to mark out when people mutter, when people cough, when people talk over the top of other people which means you could do really 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 fine-grained transcriptions and point out exactly where the you know people are talking over the top where a cough interrupts things like that so there probably is a standard symbol for the hiccup
0: but we'll never know uh so to the paper it starts uh in, in 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 the traditional fashion with an introduction
1: In this introduction, Curtis points out he's going to look at three papers in particular to argue against the monological belief system thesis. He's going to look at a paper by Wood et al., which is Dead and Alive, Beliefs in Contradictory Conspiracy Theories. Swami et al. Conspiracies Ideation in Britain and Austria Evidence of a Monological Belief System and Associations Between Individual Psychological Differences and Real World and Fictitious Conspiracy Theories. I really feel that title's far too long. Could do with the trim. And Ted Goetzel's classic paper from 1994, Belief in Conspiracy Theories, which is where the Monological Belief System Hypothesis was first put forward.
0: Mm. and so these are all papers in psychology social psychology political psychology the other ones from the british journal of psychology so yeah so this 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 is a philosopher taking on the psychologists and what he, he says uh, in, in his words he says he's going to show the following one the often cited claim that conspiracy theorists tend to simultaneously believe contradictory conspiracy theories based on the wood paper is unfounded Two, a study that purports to show that conspiracy theorists are more prone than others to believe entirely fictitious conspiracy theories, the Swami paper, is one-sided and misleading. In addition, the authors make an error about belief that's analogous to the one made by Wood and others. Further, there is nothing unusual or problematic about the reasoning process that presumably underlines the phenomenon they document. And three, both of the above studies claim to provide evidence that conspiracy theorists tend to operate within a monological belief system, And an idea first, first put forward by Ted Gertzel. This label, as described by Goetzel, implies that there is something epistemically problematic about the reasoning of conspiracy theorists. It's, and so what he's, what he's going to want to say is that in all of these, series, in all of these studies, the, the, the evidence that's there, what, what it shows is actually quite unproblematic and where they try to say that there are problematic things, those things aren't supported by the, uh, by the evidence or that they apply specifically to conspiracy theorists.
1: Yeah. So part of his argument here is that conspiracy theories get blamed for a variety of ills. And yet at best, what these papers show is that there are problems in reasoning which sometimes occur when people believe in conspiracy theories. But the papers don't support the contention that these problematic reasoning patterns are only found with respect to belief in conspiracy theories. So one kind of takeaway from this paper is the question, why are you picking on conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists Rather than go, well look, these are just problematic patterns of reasoning that occur all around the place. Why pick on the conspiracy theories? Why this particular issue?
0: So that moves him on to section two, where he looks at the first thing. Well, of no, these no, then there's
1: the it. What up? did I miss? Well well, the other point is that why the reason why Curtis is looking at these papers in particular is that they're very well cited papers in the psychological literature. So when people claim, oh look, conspiracy theorists believe contradictory things, they point towards a paper that Curtis is going to argue doesn't quite show what it claims to show. Or when people say, look, conspiracy theorists suffer from a monological belief system, they point towards the Goetzel paper, and Curtis is going to say, well look, this paper isn't well substantiated, so it's a problem that not only do these papers make bolder claims than they ought to, but they're then cited by other people as evidence that these claims are true. So it's a problem not just of the original conceptualization, but also the fact that people are then kind of willfully citing papers with problematic conceptualization as evidence of a problem that probably doesn't exist.
0: Yes. And uh, that's so, yes, that leads into... Section two, conspiracy theorists believe contradictory conspiracy theories. By saying that there are that, that, that yes, the literature refers to studies which say that conspiracy beliefs are monological, and we'll get into the detail of what that means in a little while. To the extent that people will will even believe multiple contradictory conspiracy theories, um, which is then used to imply, well, look, look how irrational these conspiracy theorists are. They they believe they, they even believe things, they even contradict themselves in their own beliefs. Um, and so, as examples of this, he gives um, the, the 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 bit noir of the conspiracy theory theorist Set Cass Sunstein also says this has been referred to by um, the two Jo's, Usinski and and Parent. Do they do they get called the two Jo's? Do they call themselves Joseph and Joseph, like Thompson and Thompson and Tintin, or something like that? And if so not, I think amongst
1: not? amongst conspiracy theory theorists, yes, they get referred to as the two Jo's. In fact, actually, there's a There's a nice little joke that Curtis has in the paper where he talks about Joe Conspiracist and Joe Conventionalist. So he's really taking the Joe thing to a new and humorous conclusion here. But no, having met the two Joes, they're not really like the Thompson twins, and they're definitely not like the other Thompson twins.
0: Well, that's a bit of a shame, to be honest. Uh, But at any rate, so when people people talk about this stuff, in particular... A claim that comes up a lot is this, the, the, the idea that there's a study which shows that people believe that Osama bin Laden is still alive and also believe that he was already dead before the raid that supposedly killed him. Indeed, similar claims about Princess Di being both alive and dead or something like that. Uh, now, what these particular examples come from the Michael Wood paper from 2012, is, dead yeah, and alive.
1: 2012, Dead and Alive Belief in Contradictory Conspiracy Theories.
0: But uh, as Curtis shows, the, 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 the two studies cited in this paper don't actually show that. They, they don't, it's not like it's, here's a list of things, do you believe in all these things? And they tick the box for yes, I believe this one and yes, I believe that one. They gave a bunch of conspiracy theories and asked them to rate their level of agreement with it on a scale from one to seven, I think it was.
1: Yeah, 1 to 7 or 1 to 11 are the kind of standard like it scales when it comes to strongly agree at one end, strongly disagree at the other. It's an odd number, so you've always got a middle kind of Mm. ambivalent point, no agreement situation. And then what you tend to do is that then when you're trying to make sense of the results, you'll end up going, well, look, if we've got a seven point like it's scale, we say seven is strongly disagree, and one is strongly agree. Well, one, two, and maybe three are going to be our agreement points. And five, six, and seven will be our disagreement points, which means we've then got you know, a middle value in there, which is neither agree nor disagree. So you can reduce these things down to a binary. But as Curtis is going to argue, that's a problematic thing to do when you give people these lists of potentially contrary conspiracy theories. Because saying, I strongly agree with one hypothesis, but that strongly agree ending up being, say, a two or a three, kind of ends up confusing the analysis if you only make the results a binary. Rather than what we would take it in philosophy to be credences.
0: Mm. Yes, so it's not the study itself is not talking about belief; it's talking about level of agreement. It's talking about willingness to countenance these things. So, so it doesn't say that they believed all of these things simultaneously. It's they'd be willing to believe this. They might also be willing to believe that if it turned out th- um, to be the case. And as Curtis suggests. If if you're coming from a position of not trusting the authorities, then it, it, it is not entirely unreasonable for people to say, well, yeah, I, I don't believe the official version. Yeah, maybe it turns out he is alive. Maybe it turns out he was dead way, way before that. But either way, I think the official version is That doesn't mean you're saying, I believe he is both alive and dead right now. Um, indeed, to quote Curtis, <clears throat> As the researchers quite reasonably suggest, what seems to be at work here is a mediating belief that authorities are untrustworthy. Indeed, that is not merely an obvious and plausible idea, it is also supported by their statistical analysis." If a particular individual is less trusting of the government than someone else, regardless of what level of trust is warranted, he or she is more likely to give greater credence to alternative accounts of contested events. There's simply nothing epistemically dubious about, say, rating both the notion that Obama was already dead and that he is still alive. Uh, Osama, not not Obama. (laughs) I knew I was going to do that. That that he's uh, still alive is more, quote, plausible, convincing, worth considering and coherent than someone else with more faith in official stories uh, rated both theories.
1: So, yeah, he, he gives Lee Basham's analogy Ooh, about losing your which keys. Which I'm sure we've mentioned and, before. Yeah, but the brief pre-save of this is, look, you may discover you don't know where your keys are, and you end up going, well, I know the keys aren't on my person. So either they're still in the lock in the front door or I've left them beside the fridge. And so you entertain two contradictory hypotheses, because if the keys are in the front door, they can't be beside the fridge if they're beside the fridge, they can't be in the front door. But because you know absolutely the keys aren't on your person, you end up going, well, look, I think it's, it's actually likely they're in one of two locations. And I've got a tendency to leave my keys in the front door when I come in. And I've also got a tendency to drop my keys beside the fridge. So I'm entertaining those as both likely hypotheses but it doesn't mean I'm, be- I'm sincerely believing two contradictory claims. It's more that I'm going, look, I think it's highly likely they're in one of two places, and now I'm going to work out which of these two places they're actually in.
0: Yes. Now, you mentioned, um, you mentioned the term credence. Is that, is, that a, is that a significant thing in, philosophy, in epistemology at least?
1: It has become of recent note, so credences or talking about degrees of belief has become a big hot-button issue in epistemology, because the old way of talking about belief, so an agent believes that P, or an agent does not believe that P, doesn't really account for situations like the key example, where it seems that agents are entertaining belief that P and belief not that P at the same time. And so epistemologists go, well, look, obviously, obviously it's not just a binary between I believe that P or I don't believe that P. There are degrees of strength in my belief that P. And so that often gets talked about as a degree of belief or a credence. And a lot of epistemic logic now is centred around how do we work out the credence of a belief and then how do we sort through different credences to work out kind of the valency of belief given particular circumstances.
0: Mm. Now, uh, closing out this chapter, Curtis basically makes the case that the authors should have known better than to promote... Or, or, to stand back and allow others to promote the idea that their studies show actually showed individuals believing contradictory things, and 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 yet people did, as we saw at the start. It's it's it was something that got quoted by a bunch of people.
1: And once again, I think part of the problem here is the mathematication, mathematication, Mathemalization. i Yeah, mathification mm. The. And I mean, this is this getting into a whole issue in the philosophy of the social sciences, the idea that the social sciences are trying to act like hard sciences with respect to measurement of things which are probably actually fuzzy rather than strict. But if you take your seven-point Likert scale, which is a degree-of-belief assessment system, and then you reduce it down to anything from one to three is yes, four is don't know, and then five to seven is no, then you end up generating a binary. And that binary then allows you to conclude that actually people are believing contradictory things because you've taken all of the nuance between one to three and four to seven, and you've made it, sorry, uh, five to seven, and you've made it disappear with mathematics, And the whole point here is they should have recognized in the first place, if you're giving people seven points, then if someone chooses two or three, that is nowhere near the kind of certainty that someone who is choosing one. But if your modeling reduces two to three down to the same category as one, as strong agreement, then you get this false binary out of a degree of belief system.
0: So this uh, takes us into the next one, the next paper we're looking at, Chapter 3, Conspiracy Theorists Even Believe Conspiracy Theories That Are Completely Made Up. Uh, so now we're looking at the paper by Viran Swamy from 2011, that one with the uh, – let, let's read it out again just to find Conspiracist ideation in Britain and Austria, Evidence of a Monological Belief System and Associations Between Individual Psychological Differences and Real-World and Fictitious Conspiracy Theories <gasps> from the British oh. Journal of Psychology.
1: Yes, precisely. Now,
0: Again, this 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 is a study in which subjects were asked to rate the extent to which they agreed with various statements about a completely fictitious conspiracy theory, one that had been made up um, by the people who who set the survey. And then and and the fact that people did rate this highly was taken to believe. Look, here are these conspiracy theorists. They'll they'll believe anything. They'll believe anything. And so I I, I assumed that the study showed that people who were known to believe in conspiracy theories did rate this particular as it turned out fictitious conspiracy theory higher and so that was taken to be oh, look, these conspiracy theorists then you know once you're a conspiracy theorist then you'll believe any old bollocks but once again didn't didn't actually say do you believe that this is true for one thing it's how you know how 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 much to, what's the extent to which yeah. you agree with it
1: effectively what they're asking is do you think the story i'm telling you is plausible And it's not unusual to think that if someone already believes certain conspiracy theories, they might find a similar conspiracy theory to be a plausible hypothesis to entertain. But the fact that you find a hypothesis plausible to entertain doesn't tell you that the person sincerely is committed to that belief being true.
0: Mm. So as Curtis puts it, To what extent should someone agree with a statement that they know nothing directly about, have never heard of, and so could not have had any opinion about prior to being asked? It seems they should have responded, I don't know, I have no opinion, for all they know about it, which is nothing, the theories could be true. But I don't know was not an option. They had to pick a number between one, completely false, and nine, completely true. The sensible thing to do, it seems, is to answer according to how likely to be true they judge the statement to be, or how plausible it seemed to them. And if they do this, the subjects can be expected to make their judgments based on their views regarding analogous cases, about which they do already have opinions, presumably based on something. And so, it seems, they did. And so then this gets reported as... You know, pe- people who believe conspiracy theories are more likely to believe a made-up one, making people who believe conspiracy theories look silly, and people who don't believe in conspiracy theories, conventionalists, is the term that get used here, look more sensible. But as Curtis points out, th- th- this is this is slant. Th- this is this is putting a slant on things. This is setting things up, uh, engineering a situation that makes the conspiracy believers look sillier than the conspiracy non-believers. Uh, but it could go the other way.
1: Yeah, I mean, as he says, but that is an illusion, i.e. the result they get. The conspiracy theorist and the conventionalist, as far as we can tell, are both reasoning the same. If the researchers had picked a true but little-known conspiracy theory as the test, the conspiracy theorist would have come out looking better. Indeed, that is not just speculation. Such an experiment has now been done.
0: So, uh, Michael Wood did a different study in 2016, that basically did that, and it showed that people who reject speculative conspiracy theories, like do you do you, do you believe uh, evidence of alien contact is being concealed from the public, and then they those people were more likely to reject conspiracy theories that have actually been proved true, in particular. Uh, how likely is the idea that the government has performed mind-control experiments on its own citizens without their consent, which is, they're talking about MK Ultra, which is a real thing that's documented and that we know is true. Now, this, I, I, I don't know much about this study. Uh, Curtis says that, that, that Wood is, is, quote, more balanced in his conclusions of this one, but um, I don't know how trustworthy it is compared to, the, uh, compared to his others.
1: So the Wood
0: 2016,
1: which is basically looking at the believability of the, well, sorry, the way that the label conspiracy theory affects believability, is a very interesting paper. And I'm choosing my words very carefully here because I'm doing some work with Martin Orr and Jenna Husting, looking at this particular paper and trying to untangle some of the knotty problems in Wood's work Wood's work is very suggestive but we feel it doesn't quite fit in with the other work on labelling practices around the term conspiracy theory so whilst I can see why Curtis is going well this is a much more balanced conclusion than that of Swami et al I think there are problems with the Wood 2016 paper which are interesting problems because they point in a very different direction from the kind of problems that the swami paper has but at the same time i wouldn't necessarily take wood's word here and curtis has read a draft of the paper that we've written critiquing wood and i don't think it's out of place for me to say that he thinks our paper is good so Mm. i think even so i think Curtis back in 2018 was going, yay, Wood 2016. Curtis in 2022 might be going, hmm, Wood 2016. Interesting conclusions, but
0: there's still more work to be done here. Mm. So rounding out this uh, this section, Curtis says it's important to keep in mind that neither conspiracy theorists nor the conventionalists can make an a priori claim that their inference was the better one. Which group is more likely to be right in real cases depends upon how common the conspiratorial behaviours of the types in question really are. And to have a sense of that, one has to do an empirical study not of conspiracy theorists, but of the history of conspiracies, both of the officially acknowledged and of the controversial varieties. And, and also, I mean, neither neither party in either of these cases is reasoning badly they're just starting from different positions if you think conspiracy theories are more likely then a new one that you've never heard of you're going to think you you're going to be disposed to think it's more likely if you think they're unlikely then a new one you've never heard of you're going to be disposed to think it's unlikely that's um as we will see in the next section that's just kind of how reasoning works a lot of the time. I mean,
1: that's that's context, baby. That's yeah. context.
0: So then in the next section, we finally get into this idea of a monological belief system. Uh, section four is called Conspiracy Theorists Are Monological Thinkers. They Talk Only to Themselves. So it says, the idea that so-called conspiracy ideation is indicative of a monological belief system was first suggested by political scientist Ted Goetzel, 1994, and now enjoys experimental support, supposedly, from the works of various various psychologists, including Michael Wood and Veeran Swamy. So a monological belief system is defined as one in which conspiratorial idea serves as evidence for other conspiracist ideation.
1: Yes, so basically, if you believe one conspiracy theory then you're probably going to end up believing another conspiracy theory and another conspiracy theory and another conspiracy theory. And so you're just going to end up believing conspiracy theories and only conspiracy theories.
0: Uh, But Curtis doesn't really think this is a problem. He says, but is there really anything here that applies uniquely to conspiracy ideation or that in any case is epistemically problematic or noteworthy? I do not think so. What Swami Atel describe is a characteristic of all sensible people, including believers in conventional interpretations of events.
1: Now Josh, a quick a quick question. Ideation or ideation? I I, I always say ideation. You're saying ideation. I'm saying ideation. What's going on there?
0: Um I don't know. It's just the way I, t- I, I could look. Do you want me to look it up? Should I look it up right now and see yeah, if there's because, a-
1: because I, I, I'm, I'm wondering whether it's a US UK divide or mm-hmm. whether, like how I used to say a whole bunch of other words incorrectly, I now can't think of a single example. But I used to say mm-hmm. I used to say all sorts of other words incorrectly, and maybe I've just been saying ideation or ideation well, inconsistently no, to say- or ink consistently.
0: Uh, this is a sample of one, but dictionary.com says ideation. So there you go. Maybe I should change my tune. <coughs>
1: Maybe you should. And Maybe also you should. change your last name to Hagen. You are now Why? Josh Hagen, Why? and Hagen? you say ideation. No, no, because <laughs> no, okay. we, we're, we're trying to get curses to change his name uh, to right, Hagen. Of
0: course, of course. So yes.
1: you're going to be Josh Hagen, who says, <laughs> I about to say ideation. Ideation, ideation,
0: ideation. Yes, good. So, so, any rate, to to illustrate the point that he's making, he takes um, a a section from um, Swami's text about how uh, conspiracists believe in all this, uh, have these tendencies, and therefore believe in all this stuff, and basically reverses it to instead talk about conventionalists, where and where 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 you can say, oh, these conspiracists, the more they believe it, the more cynical they become, and the more. Strongly, they'll believe in these things while the conventionalist becomes more trusting or naive of official sources and shows weaker support for certain things. And so, you know, you you can you can reverse it quite easily um, to show that this is just this is just a way, a strategy, a way people reason towards things. And it's not uh particular to conspiracy theorists, and it's not particularly bad when conspiracy theorists or well, not 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 necessarily I guess bad when conspiracy theorists do it uh He says there's something strange about pointing out this fact for the reasoning it describes is both ubiquitous and epistemically unproblematic. of course, one belief serves as evidence for another, and so it should there's hardly an alternative and then but but then develops this further and people say, okay, things are used. As evidence for the likelihood of some other things, and then yes, that's that's normal, and regardless of the context, that's the thing people do. According to some of these studies, though, they, they say conspiracy theorists will use conspiracy theories as evidence for other completely unrelated conspiracy theories, and they will say, you know, that's you, of course, of course, it's fine to believe things about a certain topic, and you're likely to believe similar things about the same topic but but these conspiracy theorists they'll just because they believe about one conspiracy theory about you know aliens then they'll believe this other conspiracy theory about osama bin laden or whatever
1: yeah Um, so it's the argument look if you start to believe that osama bin laden wasn't killed by the navy seals in afghanistan then five days later you'll believe the earth is hollow and actually radio waves are uh, emanating from Saturn, a.k.a. Satan, being echoed down to Earth by the moon. So you believe one conspiracy theory, and very soon you're going to believe a lot of other weird and unrelated things. Mm. And as Curtis points out, that's kind of ignoring the context under which conspiracy theorizing occurs. It's not that these things are unrelated. At base, there probably is... Commonalities such as, say, distrust in authority or distrusting certain types of experts or sources of expertise.
0: So, monological belief systems. It seems they're they're okay in the respect of beliefs in one thing making you more likely to believe in similar things. Um, Curtis does say there is an epistemic problem with a monological belief system. He says. Still, there is something about monological belief systems that is epistemically problematic. Goetzel describes it this way. Belief systems can be characterized as dialogical or monological. Dialogical belief systems engage in a dialogue with their context, while monological systems speak only to themselves, ignoring their context in all but the shallowest respects. Or other people will talk about a closed epistemology. And so the accusation, accusation becomes that conspiracy theorists, first of all, are indifferent to evidence and rely only on their existing beliefs and the, and also explain events in terms of general just patterns about the world rather than, quote, the unique proximal conditions that may have brought it about. Now, the problem with that, as Curtis says, is that, yes, that, that, that's, that's a problematic part about monological belief systems, but the studies don't show that. They, they, they don't show that conspiracy theorists uh, suffer from these problems. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but the, the, the actual studies that are appealed to don't show that way. They show that people who believe in conspiracy theories are more likely to believe in other conspiracy theories, and as we've said, that there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But they don't show evidence of conspiracy theorists living in, in a closed-off world, and being more likely to ignore evidence. And indeed, Curtis kind of thinks the opposite may be true, given the way conspiracy theorists have been known to sift through the finest details and and demand the release of, of various official documentation and so on and so forth. And also he says it's not true that conspiracy theorists don't engage with contrary viewpoints. He says this idea is false, at least as it applies to a large segment of conspiracy theorists who clearly do engage with conventionalists and often seek out opportunities for debate. I I don't know. A lot of the debates I've seen are not really undertaken in good faith, but nevertheless it's true that there is they're not living in a closed off world. They are very much interested in what their opponents have to
1: say. Basically all Curtis needs to show is that conspiracy theorists in that pejorative sense are not monological believers in the Goetzel sense. So he's correct to say, look, actually, monological belief systems are fairly common. One one belief does beget another. What makes a monological belief system pathological is that Goetzel builds in, ah, but these people not only believe one thing after the other, but they also don't interact with other sources of information or other people. And all Curtis needs to do is point out, well, that's, that's not a fair characterization. I mean, you might worry about the sincerity of some conspiracy theorists wanting to have debates, but we can show that they are interacting with evidence outside of their community. So obviously it's not a monological belief system in the sense that Goetzel wants to talk about.
0: So... It's not looking great for the social scientists at this point, but we move to section five. Sutton and Douglas to the rescue, sort of. Uh, so this refers to the paper by R.M. Sutton and K. Douglas, Kim Douglas, I think. I can't remember.
1: Karen Douglas. Karen, Karen. There we go. Yes, I, comes, I mean, I mean given that I'm, I'm, I'm an advisor on her, her research project at the U- University of Kent. There is no Kim Probably Douglas. It's right, very right, definitely Karen Douglas, Professor I had Karen it, Douglas. I had it lower down in for the notes,
0: lim- but not right where I was looking at. So there we go. That's what I get for making making assumptions. It's, it's, it's
1: because you saw K.M and you went, mm, it, it, K. It, K. That's M.
0: almost certainly what it is, yes. Yeah. Anyway, their paper is called Examining the Monological Nature of Conspiracy Theories from 2014. And the paper suggests that there is no empirical evidence for key tenets of the monological position. And then then Curtis quotes some motley duo by the names of Basham and Dentith. Sounds to me like like sort of the Victorian grave robbers, some sort of Basham and Dentith,
1: Not just Victorian grave robbers, but the names indicate exactly what their roles are because they Mm -hmm. weren't just grave robbers. They were the people, you know, they were the body snatchers who killed their victims. So Basham... Hits them over the head, and Dentith extracts the teeth. teeth. Gold,
0: gold teeth, Mm.
1: gold, gold teeth.
0: But anyway, this this unsavory Basham and Dentith duo also said similar things to point out that uh, uh, this idea that conspiracy theorists have a a closed epistemology is not really actually that true at all. And so it goes through it goes through their paper, although says they're not. They're they're not entirely even-handed about it. So finishing out, Curtis says, uh, but their attempt at even-handedness is spotty. In addition to continuing to maintain that conspiracy theorists tend to simultaneously believe contradictory theories, they also seem to accept some baseless stereotypes, such as the view that conspiracy theorists base their ideas on limited information. They also state the majority of conspiracy theories lack evidential support and are resistant to falsification. They cite a two thousand two article by Steve Clark, I assume one of those Hey, of we've that. covered that we paper. Have. Uh, although Clark does not exactly assert, much less prove that conspiracy theories lack evidential support. In fact, though Clark does seem to take a dim view of conspiracy theories, it's not because they simply lack evidential support. Indeed, Clark writes conspiracy theorists are typically quite dedicated in their search for evidence relevant to their favourite conspiracy theory and are usually able to overwhelm you with a deluge of evidence in favour of that theory. So as it turns out, not only does the claim that the majority of conspiracy theorists lack evidential support itself lack evidential support, its fallacy is admitted by critics of conspiracy theories. Would you still call Steve Clark a critic of conspiracy theories? I don't know what his, where his views are at these days.
1: Yeah, I, I take it that he's, in the words of Patrick Stokes, a bit of a reluctant particularist in that I don't think he likes a lot of the conspiracy theories we see in public discourse. But at the same time, he's also of the opinion that, you know, conspiracy theories can be warranted, actually often are warranted in a particular context. And there's no prima facie case against conspiracy theorizing, even if it turns out you don't like the conspiracy theorists who live in your community. And frankly, that's a fairly common view amongst a large number of particulars who so go, well, look, there's nothing wrong with conspiracy theories, but God's sake, there are some really annoying conspiracy theorists out there who make our job all the more difficult.
0: Hmm. So that leads us into section six: some final considerations, which is sort of a few, I guess, points that didn't fit, fit somewhere else. I don't know from a from what I'm I'm learning from looking at papers. Is this a is this a shutting up the reviewers section? Is it a oh, and one other thing that I didn't have room for section? Is it a bit of both? What's going on in the slides, do you think?
1: I think it's kind of a bit of both, and that it's both a combination of here are some points that don't quite fit into the delightful structure of the first two-thirds of the article but the things i feel need to be said so those are the final considerations and also it's a chance to respond to the reviewers we're going well look what about x or y fine i'll write about x or y i'll put it in this section here because trying to fit it into the rest of the narrative really ruins my flow so here it is i've fulfilled your requirement please just let me publish the paper now Mm. Which is a perfectly fine thing to do in the academic game of publication.
0: Mm. So there are a few sort of other points and studies that get brought up. Um, He says, let us look at the issue once again, this time framed by Sutton and Douglas. Quote, one of the predictions of the monological position is that adherents versus skeptics of conspiracy theories will invoke fewer concrete facts and more general patterns when explaining major events. Even if they did, so what? This is not really a problem so long as there is at least some attention to facts of the case in question. After all, if we're only talking about a difference in degree, not about abandoning all consideration of proximate data altogether, would it be better to rely more on proximate evidence or more on analogy to other cases and other general uh, considerations, i.e. prior probability considerations? We cannot render a general verdict. It depends on all, the, all sorts of factors. What can be generally said is that, to some degree, both background considerations relevant to prior probability and direct evidence pertinent to the particular case should be considered. Showing that conspiracy theorists tend to rely more on prior probability than forensic evidence, dubious as that proposition is, would imply nothing interesting about the psychology or the quality of the reasoning of those conspiracy theorists. And he says a bit later, uh, sort of... Uh, about about the fact that conspiracy theorists are, are often coming from a different position. Um, this comes up, I think, perhaps more in, when he talks about next, uh, about um, uh, Wood and Douglas's paper from 2013, What About Building 7? A Social Psychological Study of Online Discussion of 9-11 Conspiracy Theories, which is a paper we, we, we first mentioned long before we started looking, started doing the conspiracy theory masterpiece. Section um, we looked at it back in episode sixty six when we were talking about Building Seven, which is what this paper concerns. Which about.
1: is four episodes after
0: our interview with Dean. Sure is. Uh, and so this this paper, basically the gist of it is that conspiracy theorists uh, that they were using conspiracy theories around uh, World Trade Center Building Seven and uh, its its destruction. Um, the claim was that conspiracy theorists. Spend all their time uh, bagging the official theory and very little time actually putting forward theories of their own. And K- I mean, K- Curtis basically says, "Well, that's just a that's just one that's just sort of an argumentative tactic. That's just a, a strategy." And gives gives the analogy of you know a, a defense attorney might talk entirely about their clients. Uh, character and bring up lots of lots of witnesses saying how great a person they are, rather than other evidence about the case, or what have you. And that's that's just a particular strategy. I I don't know that I bought that a hundred percent, but certainly it's not necessarily a bad thing if you're only going if if you spend more of your time attacking the official theory, especially as he points out. The official theory—it's it, the official theory. It's what's being—it's—it's it's, you, you've got the 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 um, authority, the, the 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 governments, and the you know the the people in power are putting out all this information about their theory. That's that's the majority of the information that's going out there. So it's not unsurprising, perhaps, that people would devote more of their time to attacking the evidence that actually exists. Um, than stuff for conspiracy theories, which might be a little more scarce. But. Um...
1: The, well, the other thing to note here is that both philosophers and psychologists have a kind of high standard for what they take to be interaction in a debate. So you know, epistemologists go, well, you know, "Where's your argument? What, what are your premises? Are you arguing in a non fallacious way?" And psychologists will want to know, "You know, are they only using preferences or dispositions? Are they arguing along belief structures?" Most people, when they argue, aren't arguing to the standards of what an academic thinks a good argument is. So it's kind of unfair to ping anyone in a debate, particularly conspiracy theorists, for not arguing in the ideal academic way that we want them to. Most people engage in fallacious reasoning and homonyms and the like, and they think that they are arguing in a legitimate way and in a cultural context. They kind of are, because that's how most debates occur in real life and online. Those of us in our ivory towers go, oh, that's that's a bad standard of debate. Ad hominem, you should never use an ad hominem. But at the same time, most common people are looking up at us and our ivory towers going, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Mm. You bastard.
0: Yeah, I mean, I sort of, I, 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 yeah, I think of the sorts of arguments I've seen um, and this idea of... of uh people you know what being keen to engage in debate and um just simply using as a as a as a a sort of tactical argumentation the um casting doubts on the official theory more and so on it it sounds all very sort of sensible and so on and then i think of your discussion with jazz coleman and it's sort of like yeah i mean that it can be like that. It can also be like that, though. But I mean, it, it, it doesn't. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, as you say, reasoned ivory tower debate in all cases. The fact is that it's a thing that happens. It's not entirely unexcusable. And even if it is, even even if this is all true, that people are just just banging on the consp- on the official theory and not giving any thought to, to putting forward one of their own, it doesn't actually say anything about the truth or, or falsity. Of any particular theory. And I think that's something that, that again comes out in the rest of this, this um, section. So much of what's being said here isn't particular to conspiracy theories and you could just as easily turn it around and make the same arguments against people who are, uh, are unlikely to believe in conspiracy theories.
1: Yeah, I mean, as Curtis writes, in alliance with other social scientists, it seems that psychologists have invented a problem so as to posit a psychological explanation for it, and do so in a way that seems to reflect poorly on conspiracy theories. But there is nothing here that needs any kind of special explanation or should be understood as problematic. The most straightforward view is that different people come to different conclusions about conspiracy theories for the same kind of reasons that they come to different conclusions about other matters. They weigh up the evidence they are aware of, factoring in some sense of prior probability. Neither the psychological research by Wood and Swami, nor the arguments of Goetheel, indicate that the explanation for conspiracy theorizing resides in anything more interesting than that.
0: And there's a little more on on um, in that line that you know you could you could do this the other way around. You could ask why were people so unwilling to believe things that, um, or rather, why were people so willing to believe uh, conspiracy sort of propaganda conspiracies put forward that we now know are untrue the, the the babies getting kicked out of incubators in Iraq and and Saddam Hussein being in cahoots with Al Qaeda and all that sort of stuff. And basically, the general point is that yeah. whether any of these things are problematic or not, they're not, for certain, particular to conspiracy theories. And that takes us into section 7, the conclusion, which reads, This article has shown in a narrow sense that several social science papers focusing on conspiracy theories have published very flawed findings, and that these flawed findings were accepted uncritically and repeated by other scholars and more broadly as well. Indeed, these findings were used to disparage conspiracy theorists unfairly, making them appear intellectually unhinged, while it was these scholars themselves, ironically, who were failing to reason clearly. Further, this article has suggested that the flaws in question ought to have been noticed, though exactly how obvious these flaws are is a matter of subjective interpretation. One implication is that scholars and social scientists in particular ought to be much more careful in their treatment of conspiracy theorists. Unfairly disparaging a large class of people is no small matter. I will end with a more general worry. Many philosophers, including David Cody and Steve Clarke, have commented that academics have a low opinion of conspiracy theorists, from Cody 2006, or that conspiracy theorists are unpopular amongst intellectuals, from Clarke's 2002. Indeed, it hardly takes a philosopher to notice that, but it is troubling to consider this in connection with the lopsided and unfair treatment of conspiracy theorists in the social science literature, for it suggests that these are not just innocent mistakes that could have gone either way. Rather, one must worry that bias against conspiracy theories is influencing the results of social science scholarship with one biased finding building upon another. And while this article has been narrowly focused on the treatment of conspiracy theories in particular, it raises the question of the degree to which the social science literature more generally may be influenced by other widely shared biases. If you have the dun-dun-dun queued up, play the dun-dun-dun. That's more like it. Sure. Yes, uh, Yeah. A, 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 a good paper one, which I uh, basically agree with.
1: So do I, although I have been somewhat distracted through a large chunk of this conversation, having pointed out the thing about ideation versus ideation, going, what was the word that you corrected me on back in second year that I was mispronouncing with what I can only call gay abandon? And that word was hyperbole. Because uh-huh. I used to say hyperbole. It's, it's and one day you pointed it out to me. And you went, Why do you say hyperbole? And I was going, Cause That's how it's pronounced. You went, I think you'll find it's hyperbole. And that day, that day changed my life in a very, very minor way. Mm. Not yeah. in a way which is that mm. she had any material significance, but it did change my life.
0: Yes, I I don't recall that exact uh, conversation, but yes, I imagine why are you pronouncing it that way, the the, the answer would be because that's how any sensible person who's only seen it written down would pronounce it. Damn Greeks, I assume that's a Greek word. They always stick their E's on the end and then pronounce them like maniacs.
1: I've actually found a list of the 13 most commonly mispronounced words in American English Mm -hmm. and the right way to say them. The first word is anyway.
0: What do people say? Anyways or something?
1: Yeah, so they're pointing out people are pluralizing it. I don't really see that problem. It's Uh, just a thing. Tenant
0: instead of tenant. Yep. Mm.
1: Comptroller, which is apparent. Oh, because they point out it's not comptroller; it's it's controller. It's pronounced
0: controller, despite the fact that it's spelled differently, and it means controller. It's, it's a, the most bizarre word to end up in the English language. I don't understand. I, I think it's one of those ones where it sort of came into the language from French and from Latin or something, or or from French and then from French at a later time after they'd started pronouncing it differently. I can't remember. But it's a thoroughly bizarre word. Coup one. de gras? Coup de gras. is another one. They Although cu- I, well, I put cu- it cu- out. Coup de grace. Yep. Coup de gras. Electoral to electoral. Elect- I, I think I say electoral time halfway in between both.
1: Electoral. Yeah, so apparently that's, that's how they want it to be pronounced in American English. Of course, our good old friend, Hyperbole, Perbole. Mischievous. Oh, mischievous. mischievous. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. It doesn't actually have an I-O-U-S,
0: does it? Like mm. like yeah. Light,
1: yeah, because, yeah, 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 Mischievous is kind of weird because you kind of assume the C-H-I is giving you the evious, and mm-hmm. actually it's, it's not. Ophthalmologist? Apparently, people have difficulty with but that it one. Is a tricky one.
0: PTH. Prestigious, which I'm some people say, yep, "I think I say prestigious actually, but it is about prestige, I guess." Yeah, prestigious. Yeah.
1: Uh, prostate. So prostate.
0: Prostate versus prostrate. Yeah. Yep. Key. Which which one? The Q U A Y one. Yeah. yep. Yeah. Segway oh yeah well i have always pronounced it right. I've spelled it wrong my whole life until I actually saw it written down. I think because and I spelled the, because of the one, scooter
1: yeah the final one is remuneration
0: oh yes, remuneration,
1: remuneration. Mm. yeah
0: remuneration yes to remunerate is to count something again, but it, it does seem yeah anyway
1: so there you go thirteen words which even I don't pronounce consistently in no. any way, shape or form no. And frankly, I also don't care.
0: Mm. So anyway, paper, good. I liked it. Uh, Didn't read all the footnotes, I have to say. There were quite a few. I I didn't spot... Where's the one?
1: Nobody reads all the footnotes. Footnotes is where good ideas go to die. And I say that as someone who puts good ideas in footnotes, realising that no one's ever going to read them.
0: I couldn't find the one about Joe Conspiracist and Joe... Ah oh, there it is there we go Joe conventionalist and Joe conspiracist yes uh, I did i oh, i did i couldn't couldn't help but notice he couldn't resist bringing up when he mentions Keith sunstein the oh and, and sunstein he's the one who who said that those frames from the Pentagon proved irrefutably that the 9 eleven attacks were real when they did nothing of the sort, which is true but not relevant to this paper but
1: Look, hissing Cass Sunstein metaphorically on the head for a stupid
0: paper is the right of any philosopher Well, yes, that's fair uh, So, that is this episode, I think and, and pretty much bang on time So, of course, we have a bonus episode to record after this for, uh, for, for Exclusively for our beloved patrons What are we going to talk about this week?
1: We're going to talk about a neo-Nazi running as a councillor for Upper Hutt. Just one. We're going to talk about how a former Proud Boy faked his own arrest so he could go on holiday. How Trump has got his special master, and that's really pissing people off. And a story we probably should have covered last week and somehow forgot to. The arrest of two media hosts in Aotearoa, New Zealand, for showing objectionable material.
0: Hmm. So if you're interested in hearing about that, uh, then you'd best become a, a patron post-haste. And if you're a patron, uh, well, then you're sorted. You, you, you the patrons, already know that anybody can go to patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy and sign themselves up for as little as $1 a week. Week? Month? Dollar a month? Yes. Month, anyway, month. I don't know. M's the I mean, money. Handles if, the money side of things.
1: If you want to give us a dollar a week, even better. Even
0: better, yes. No, I I, I don't worry my pretty little head with money matters. I just assume that Em will keep me in the style to which I've become accustomed. So, I think we're at the end of an episode. Uh, we are indeed. Yeah. So, one, once again, farewell, Dean. You will be missed. Uh, and to the rest of you, uh, farewell as well, I guess, but not in the same way.
1: Valé, Dean. Valé. The podcasters' Guide to the Conspiracy, stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R. Extentor. Our show's cons- Sorry. Producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at gmail.com, and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, nothing is real. Everything is permitted, but conditions apply.